You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So there was once a man named, let's call him Carl. Not a real person, it's a fictional story. Uh, But Carl, uh, he... Uh, had sort of like the knack for the adventurous life. And he had this lifelong dream to own a refurbished sports car. That was his dream. So he worked hard for a number of years and finally came to the place where he felt like he could afford it. And so he decided he was going to to buy one. He shopped around and he found uh, what he thought after some searching. He found the perfect restored classic car. So he, he calls up the seller and he goes to, to look at the car and it just looks beautiful. He gives it a, a test drive with the guy who's selling it. And oh, it just it runs great. It sounds great. It handles great. It looks great. It was perfect. And so Carl's really excited and he decides he wants to buy the car. And they agree on a price. And the seller says, okay. And he hands him a purchase agreement, about 15 pages of a purchase agreement. And Carl, he's so excited because he's found the, the car of his dreams. He, he looks, kind of looks at the first page, you know, thumbs through to the very end, sees the price, sees the place to sign, and he signs the purchase agreement. He got his car. All is well. Now, unfortunately, within a few weeks, Carl started to notice there were some issues with the car of his dreams. Transmission started kicking a little bit. Brakes started squealing. Turns out that that you know, beautiful paint job was actually really cheap, started chipping off. The car was actually a piece of junk. So Carl, he's trying not to freak out, so he goes and he goes, okay, well, I just bought this thing. Surely there's, a, you know, there's always a 60 or 90 day warranty right, on these things. So he calls up the seller and the seller just points him to the purchase agreement. Carl takes out that 15-page document that he thumbed through and signed a few weeks earlier. And on page three, in teeny fine print, he sees a, a phrase that says, purchase is final, car sold as is, no warranty. Carl's stuck with a car that doesn't work. Now, what's, what's the lesson here? It's really simple. Don't skip the fine print, right? Even though you and I do that every time we download an app or something on the internet, right? A little more at stake here. It, it's essential for us as we, as we look at something like that to dive into the details to make sure we understand what is being expected of us or promised to us. Carl did not do that. Well, what does that have to do with these strange laws and passages in Exodus chapter 21 through 23. This is what we could rightly call the fine print of God's law, right? In fact, I was surprised how many commentators and pastors, and that's, I understand, just in their sermon series and things, just like, we'll just skip over this part, right? Because there is a lot of what we could call fine print law here. Last week, we looked at a highlight in the book of Exodus, something that most people know about, the Ten Commandments, right? 
as we began chapter 20. And now, from the end of chapter 20 all the way through chapter 23, what we see is God giving these more specific commandments to the everyday life of the nation of Israel. In Exodus 24, there's a name for this. Moses gives this this section within Exodus a name. He calls it the Book of the Covenant. It's a book of fine print laws for God's people. Think of it this way. Last week, we saw the 10 words to live by. That's the 10 commandments summed up with loving God, first four commandments, and loving others, the rest of the commandments. And this week, as we move into this this fine print laws for Israel, we're seeing the application of those commandments to the civil life of Israel, right? That's the difference. Now, I, I think there's, we have to, before we dive into this, we have to point out some important differences between the Ten Commandments and these fine print applications, or else we'll be very, very confused about how these relate to us in our everyday life, right? So first, Here's some differences. First, the Ten Commandments were spoken by God on Mount Sinai for all of Israel to hear. You remember that? It wasn't just God and Moses. Moses was on the mountain. All of Israel around the mountain heard the giving of the law in the Ten Commandments. But here, these laws are spoken from God directly to Moses, not in the hearing of the people, as Moses ascends back up on Mount Sinai right? Shows us there's some difference here. Second, the Ten Commandments are written in stone. We see this in Exodus chapter 31 verse 18. Written in stone by God, these commandments were not. They were written in parchment by Moses. And then third, the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament even something like the Sabbath, which is it's explained how Christ fulfills the Sabbath. It's reiterated in the New Testament. These fine print civil laws are not. Now, why is this important? Well, this shows us that what we're looking at today doesn't have the same eternally binding weight that the Ten Commandments have, right? They're, they're time specific for the nation of God, the nation of Israel, as he's building them up as his people to display his glory to the world. He wants them to live with one another in a way that reflects his character and glorifies him. So these are simply case laws for the nation of Israel, which makes sense why people would say, well, well, let's skip over those. Those no longer apply to us under the new covenant. That's very true, but, but every one of these laws reveals something about God's character. So while the laws themselves and the applications of of, of what's happening in the the book of the covenant, chapters 21 through 23, while, while they're not binding in the same way, they do point us to principles that apply to us today. That's why we're looking at them. That's why we're not skipping over them. And here's the good news. Unlike, um, unlike Carl's car seller, God is not, uh, you know, hiding something in these things in hopes that we don't see them. Instead, he wants to bless us with his truth. He wants to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus. Just like Israel in the Exodus, he's saved us by his grace And he has called us to live a distinct and godly life in this world for his glory. So, here's what we're doing today and next week. We're we're doing a two-part series within our Exodus series 
on this section of Scripture. What does this life look like? What is God expecting of his people in their civil life with one another? So here's the question we're, we're asking today and next week. What are the distinguishing marks of a godly life? What, what does that look like? That should, what are the things that separate us as God's people from the world around us? And today we're looking at the end of chapter 20, 20 verse 22, all the way through the end of chapter 21. And, and we'll see three marks today. First, we'll see that the godly life is a life marked by worship, number one. Number two, the godly life is a life marked by compassion. And number three, the godly life is a life marked by justice. And just to say, I think it's obvious today and next week, there is no way we will address every law that's in this section. There's a weird one next week about boiling a goat in its mother's milk. No idea what that means? Not going to talk about it. You don't know what it means either. You can look it up. Nobody knows what it means. Right? But we are going to try and say, what is this revealing about God's character? And what does he expect of us? And how, as, as God's people, under the covenant of Christ, do we live this out? Okay, so let's jump in. Number one, first we see a godly life is marked by worship. Marked by worship. The end of chapter 20, beginning in verse 22, are giving applications that directly correlate with the first four commandments. Specifically, one and two. Have no other gods before me and do not make graven images. And this makes sense for us, right? And for, for Israel, be, that the first application would be about man relating to God because that's the most important thing that God desires. God created us to worship him. He's formed this nation of Israel to worship him. So the first application that he gives to Moses is about worship. And we see a few things here that, that God draws out about the importance of worship. First, we see here that true worship is word-centered. It's word-centered. Look at verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from the heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Now, this is an interesting phrase at the end of verse 22, isn't it? Moses is, is to tell the people that God says, You have seen that I have spoken. You have seen that I have spoken. And this is referring to what just happened at the giving of the Ten Commandments. The thundering voice, the smoke, the, the lightning, the sort of terrifying presence around Sinai, around God's voice. But you would think he would say something like, you yourselves have heard that I've talked from heaven or that I've spoken. But that's not what he says. And this is, this is intentional. This is not, you know, God doesn't have bad grammar here. What is he doing? He's reminding him of his word, but it's communicating something essential to Christian worship. Namely this, how does God reveal himself to his people? By speaking his word. If you want to see, know, understand who God is, you listen to his word. You rightly see God in his word. And God is reiterating what just happened to, to settle this. So friends, if, if you want to worship God rightly, right, you have to be someone who's committed to the word of God. Again, we read it in our call to worship. 
God says, I've exalted my name and my word. And we have in this word all that is sufficient for life and godliness. That's true for the, the nation of Israel as they're hearing God's word for the first time before it's inscripturated. And it's true for us today. See, we're, we're a culture that loves to elevate feeling and experience above truth. So the, the temptation, I think, for, for us today is to say, okay, yeah, the Word of God is good. We understand that. Bible's the Word of God. But wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it just be awesome if there was this audible voice from heaven? Right? Or, yeah, I understand I have the Word of God. I understand He's, he's spoken in His Word and all that. But if God could just give me a sign... There could just be some sort of, you know, mystical sign to confirm something. To which God says, you have seen that I have spoken. I've given you my word. And I, this is such an incredible reality. Think about how this transforms your Bible reading as you hear God's word and study God's word. The last time I opened my Bible, I saw the triune God of the universe. That's a reality. If I want to know God's will for my life, I can go to his word and know what he expects of me. If I want to know how to worship him and follow him, I can open up my Bible and he tells me. If I want to know how to be saved, I look to the scriptures and I see that God has spoken, most ultimately in his son Jesus. So he is reminding them of what just happened here, and he is settling them. He is centering Israel, Moses, even in this case law. He's settling it in God's word. And Israel needed to be reminded of this continually, right? Because the human heart, as John Calvin says, is a factory of idols. They would constantly be tempted to turn to this for direction, to turn to that for direction, to turn to idolatry in this way from this nation. And God is saying, let me remind you that you've seen that I've spoken. I am the one who directs you through my word. See, if we're, if we're settled in this, we'll be guarded from false worship and idolatry, right? If we really believe the truth of 2 Timothy 3.16, for example, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be equipped and complete, equipped for every good work. If we rest in that, then we will turn from our idols, we'll be able to understand false worship, what's true and what's false. We'll turn to God and say, I've seen, Lord, I've seen that you've spoken. So so true worship is word-centered. But notice also, true worship involves simplicity and purity. Look at verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you." So he's talking about the building of altars here. This is not what we'll see in the tabernacle in a few chapters. It's not the bronze altar uh, of worship there, nor is this the more permanent, what we'll see later in the Bible, um, in the temple in Jerusalem. This is a different altar outside of those places. These are altars of worship um, for God's people that they would build as they traveled through the wilderness. They would offer burnt offerings for atonement, 
I need my sins to be forgiven. And peace offerings for thankfulness and prayer and praise for what God has done. So this, this flows, right? How do, we know what God, how do we know God so we can worship him rightly? He reveals it in his word. But then we still have this problem. Because there's a barrier between a holy God and sinful man. So how will sinful people like you and me be brought back into relationship with a holy God? There must be a way for the sin of the people to be paid and removed so reconciliation can take place. Thus, God made a way through sacrifices that took place on the altar. Now you may notice we don't have an altar here this morning. We have a gym floor with a logo on it. We have pipe and drape. We have a sign that says, be great. We're in a gym, right? right. So what, what in the world does this mean for us? Well, the reason we don't have an altar and no Christian church has an altar like this today is because Jesus came and fulfilled the law and became our once for all sacrifice so that we could be brought back to God. Hebrews 10, 12 says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Amen. No more sacrifices. No more sacrificial system. All of those things pointed to the true sacrifice of Jesus Christ who has died and rose again. So what we do have, though we don't have an altar, what we do have and what we do come to every week is a table. We come to the Lord's Supper. And we are not sacrificing there. What we are doing when we come to the Lord's Supper is we are remembering the sacrifice of atonement that Christ has given for us. And we are praising God at the table for what he's done for us. So friend, if you're here this morning and you you have yet to believe in Jesus, you haven't trusted in Christ, and you're wondering, okay, how can I be brought back into right relationship with God? The answer is not, obviously not go build an altar, but the answer is also not, let me commit myself to a list of some religious duties. The answer is this, believe in Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself on the cross, was raised from the dead that you might have life and be brought near to God. That's what every altar and every sacrifice in the Old Testament points us to. So we're to let the the altar spoken of on Mount Sinai here point us to, you could say, the greater altar, the cross of Mount Calvary. Now notice also here that these altars are to be made in a real specific way. He says, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. means you shouldn't uh, cut it and, and make it nice. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by the steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, God, what, what God is doing here is he's making it clear Israel's worship is not to be like the pagan worship practices of the nations that surrounded them. Remember, they just came out of Egypt. They're going to be surrounded by Canaan. And these surrounding nations would worship their idols on high stone pyramids. Things that you would climb up to get to your false god. Right? They would also mix their pagan idolatrous worship with sexual practices. God is saying you should have none of 
that. Instead, you should worship with purity and simplicity. Just a simple stack of stones. You're not building steps to try and get to me because you can't do that anyways. I come to you. Build a simple altar and make sure you're pure. Don't adopt these pagan worship practices of the, the nations around you. So, so again, the, the desire here is purity and simplicity. We see this again in chapter 28 when the garments are being made. God is, is telling Moses how the garments for the priests are supposed to be made. And what we would say is a very strange thing. Like why is he giving specifics about priestly undergarments? You go, what in the world am I reading? Well, because pagan priests and pagan worship would involve nudity and sexual practices. And God is saying, you are not to do that. You are to be pure in your worship. Now, what, what does this mean for us? Well, friends, it's very simple. The focus of the church's worship should be God and his glory. Not a building. Now, I know that's easy for us to say because you're like, yeah, we know we're in a gym, right? Not, not the preacher's personality, not, oh, do they have a lot of great programs that fit my felt needs? Right? Not, not even your desires. The goal of gathered worship is the glory of God in purity and simplicity. And this is important for us because the idol of our culture is the idol of self. So the temptation of the modern church and the temptation of Christians will, will always be in our culture, to center things on us, to make it about us. Do I feel good after that gathering? Did, did he say something that just wowed me? Right? The goal of the gathered church is not that you and I would walk away saying, wow, that was amazing, that was incredible, that was awesome. The goal is that we would be transformed by God's word, that we would walk away saying, how great is our gracious God, how holy is he and how I love to be with my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Pure and simple. This is why as a church, we prioritize worship that sings the word of God, hears the word of God through reading, prays the word of God, proclaims the word of God through preaching, and then sees the word of God in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. That is what the church is to do. So godly life is marked by true worship. Second, we see a godly life is marked by compassion. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever." Now, if at the end of chapter 20 corresponds with the first part of the Ten Commandments related to worshiping God, we're moving into a part of this law that's related to relationships with one another. Now, I understand this is one of those passages where our friends who are opposed to Christianity say, see, the Bible promotes the evil of slavery. Right? So we have to wrestle with this. 
And, and we also have to remember, I think the first, way, first thing to understand is as we read the Old Testament, as we read passages like this, we do so as visitors from a different country, culture, and time. Right? So, for example, if you were to visit a foreign country that you knew very little about, you would see things in relationships, in marriages, in families, in business, in food, in government, you would see all sorts of things that would bother you, right? As a, especially if you're a Westerner and American, because we just think that we know everything. And those things would bother you, but it would be very arrogant and ignorant to immediately start going around and telling people in that country that they're doing everything wrong, that they don't know they should do it like this, when you have absolutely no idea about their culture, about their history, and you know very little. That would be a very arrogant thing to do. And I see some heads nodding, right? So here's my point. We wouldn't do that with a foreign country, so we shouldn't do that with the Bible, right? We shouldn't read back into certain things our modern understanding of things like slavery. Now, with that said, here's something that helps us understand the difference between what's happening here and what we understand as slavery, which is tra the transatlantic slave trade. Leviticus 25.35 gives more detail about what's happening here. And it says this, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Okay? So a modern example of that would be you have a fellow member of God's people, they can't pay the bills, they can't find work, they're struggling to get by. The church steps in to support them. Okay? Then, verse 39 of Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of jubilee. It's also helpful to know that the word used for slave in Exodus chapter 20 is actually servant, ibed. And elsewhere, Isaiah, for example, it speaks of the servant of the Lord, which is the Messiah. Moses is called the servant of God, same word used. So what's being explained here, if we take all that and put it together, what's being explained here in Exodus 20 is not race-based chattel slavery that we think of when we hear the word slavery. We have to just get that idea out of our mind because that's not at all what's happening here. In fact, Exodus 20, uh, 21 rather, condemns that. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That was shadow slavery. That was the transatlantic slave trade. God condemns it. So here in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25, what we see is, is something very different. Uh, Bible scholar Jim Hamilton describes it more like an ancient Israelite version of a welfare program. Okay? Remember, no welfare programs back then, no social security administration. So instead of distributing money in this instance, the struggling person voluntarily becomes a servant of another who is more well off so that they're provided for and so they can learn and grow in their their own skill, and they serve until the sabbatical year. There is a, a timeline on this where they can be released. We also know this isn't the same type of slavery we think of because the passage says if they want to stay with their master, 
their employer, you could say, they can. Well, that would never happen. Who would want to stay with a, in a wicked institution of what we understand as American slavery? So I hope, I hope you see this. There, there are differences here as we're entering into this context that we have to, to understand. Now, let's continue on. We see another instance here in verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out uh, as a male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Okay? So this describes a different uh, situation. The idea here is a sort of servanthood for the daughter of a poor family who would, who would be vulnerable to abuse. So she could enter into another family and be cared for. And notice the, the stipulations here. If it didn't work out, the family could ransom her, right? If it was a bad situation. She also, she couldn't be sold to foreigners. If she became engaged to one of the sons, she was treated as a daughter. She'd have the full rights of a, a free citizen, and if the engagement ended, the man had the duty of providing food and clothing to her. So the, the law here is meant to protect the vulnerable persons. It has, God has their best interest at heart. Remember also that all of this is governed by the Ten Commandments. So everyone in authority over these people should also live lives marked by loving God and loving one another. Now, I know this is a lot. One more thing I'll say here uh, about this before we apply it. There's a principle to these things that we could call the principle of accommodation. So, for example, Jesus tells the Pharisees that Moses wrote a certificate of divorce because of their hardness of heart, meaning people were mistreating their wives and they couldn't leave terrible situations. So Moses, as in, and God allowed for an accommodation in a situation for the certificate of divorce. Now, does God uphold marriage as holy? Absolutely. Does divorce break God's heart? Absolutely. But what we see there is in certain situations throughout salvation history, there have been accommodations, right? And God is making accommodations here. You say, well, why didn't he just end it? I don't know. I'm not God. But what, what we see here is what, we have this uh, trajectory in salvation history. The ideal would be that there would be no poverty, right? That no one would have to be in this situation, but there is poverty. The ideal would be that there would be no mistreatment, but there is mistreatment. So what is God doing? He's giving these laws for a specific time and place to govern his people. It, and it points us to the future day, right? When there is a day coming where there will be no more poverty, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more uh, those in vulnerable situations because Christ will return and usher in his kingdom. Okay? So with those things in mind, we're, we're to see this as God's compassion for the vulnerable people in Israel. And how do we apply this? It's very simple. We too must live lives marked by intentional compassion for one another. Notice how intentional this is. God doesn't just say, hey, love one another. And then see you later. 
He gets down into the, the everyday stuff of their life. A New Testament passage that shows this is Acts chapter 4, the beginning of the church. Verse 32 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to each as they had need. The family is being taken care of. Right? There was a man in a church I uh, was previously a part of who was struggling financially. He had lost his job. He was a single dad. He was a new Christian. And the church came around him with this kind of intentional compassion. One man had a lawn care business, so he hired this brother who could work for him. He got a good, steady job there. Another man in the church uh, helped him with learning how to manage his finances. That was an area he needed to grow in, so he sat down with them several meetings, showing him how to budget, all those sorts of things. And another person in the church discipled this man as a dad so he can raise up his sons and point him to Jesus. Intentional compassion. That's what's being drawn out here. And that is the heart of what we see in these commands. We should build margin in our time, our resources, our money, our calendars, and skills and prayerfully pursue. Who, who can we love, serve, and bless? Who's vulnerable around us? Let's make sure they're well taken care of. Why? Well, the logic for us is simple. Because Christ has been intentionally compassionate with us. Right? That's the gospel logic of Exodus. You have been redeemed. You have been saved. God says, I've shown my compassion on you. And now you're to treat one another likewise. Brothers and sisters, same for us. The gospel is the most intentional act of compassion in human history, right? Christ stepped in to our vulnerable, sin-soaked state and redeemed us. And he says, you too are to love one another. Here's what's beautiful. John, Jesus says in John 13, do you know how the world's going to know that you're my disciples? By how you love one another. Godly life is marked by intentional compassion. Then third, a godly life is marked by justice. All right? So in verse 12 of chapter 21 and, and on into the end of the chapter, even into chapter 22, there's a whole lot of fine print laws. If you thought the slavery stuff was hard, it just gets harder and stranger to us. So we see, we see capital punishment, the death penalty given here for those who murder, verses 12 through 14. Uh, for assaulting parents, uh, laws against kidnapping, penalties for life-threatening and permanent injuries. And just in case you want to know what happens if your, your neighbor gets gored by your ox, that's in here as well, 28 through 32. Again, this is fine print stuff. But again, we can sum this up and say God is showing his people that they are to live lives marked by justice in their relations with one another. A good summary of this would be uh, verse, the end of verse 20, uh, 23 into verse 24. Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. 
This is not a call to vigilante justice. I want to be clear here. Uh, Hudson and I, it was break week, so we watched the Batman movies, as one does, right? This is not like, hey, you, if somebody slaps you, slap them back. Somebody steals your car, steal their car. That's not what's being said here. What's being promoted here is the principle of proportional justice. In other words, the punishment of God's people should fit the crime. Now, we also have to acknowledge that life in a fallen world means that justice systems are broken. So though you can make a good biblical case for capital punishment in general from places like this, we did this in Genesis 9 as well in that series, there are going to be broken justice systems where capital punishment, the death penalty, things like that are, are misused and we as Christians should then oppose them. We also have to say that it is not the responsibility of the Christian church to, to try and punish people for crimes. It's one of those things I'm like, should I say that because it's obvious? You're like, duh, but we have a podcast. I just want that to be on record. You know, we don't bring up people here and try and, and punish crimes. As scripture unfolds, we see in the New Testament the government acting in this role. Acts, or, uh, Romans chapter 13, Paul says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. That phrase means he does not enact justice in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the lesson here for us is simple. We should be marked by justice because we serve a just God and every human life is made in his image. And notice here, there are direct correlations in this passage to justice issues of our day. So we should first be marked by justice in our own hearts. Do you notice that if you read through this passage, most of what's happening here, much of what's happening here is, is rooted in sinful anger and violence? Things like willful, willful murder, verse 12, striking and cursing your parents, verse 15 and 17, fighting in such a way that an innocent bystander and her unborn child are injured or killed. All of this is related to sins of anger. All of this flows out of the heart. And what Jesus does is he tells us that the root of murder is anger in our own hearts. Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Take James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, what causes these case law instances that Moses was seeing in Exodus chapter 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight in quarrel. See, friends, it'd be easy for us to go, does this really apply to me? I'm not struggling with brawling in the streets or killing people. No, but you do struggle with an angry heart. And if, if, 
If we want to decry the injustices around us, which we should, we must first begin by decrying the injustices within us, which is our own anger and sin. If you want to be passionate about justice, begin with your own heart. Sever the root of murderous anger. Repent often. Pursue reconciliation with others. Pursue a heart of justice. We also see here that the people are to be marked by justice in our homes. Verses 15 and 17. Whoever strikes his father and his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now, kids, it's a good time to praise Jesus for the new covenant, right? That these laws no longer apply. We praise God for that. There are people who say, a group of Christians who think we should institute all of the Old Testament laws are called theonomists. I hear that and I go, no thank you, right? Now, joking aside... This isn't referring to, you know, a sort of one-time fit of anger from a child. If that were true, Israel would not have lasted very long, right? They wouldn't get very far in their growth. Proverbs also tells us how to respond as parents when children are unruly. And, and Solomon doesn't say, just throw rocks at them, right? This is talking about a total rejection of parental authority and talking about parental abuse here, right? Striking them. And the point is this, sin against your parents is sin against God. So kids, honor your father and mother. We can expand this as well to the family. Parents, love and discipline your children. Don't exasperate them. Right? Pursue justice in the home. And when we do that as God's people, we are actually building a just society. It's very easy to say, oh, I should be do taking care of this justice issue over here, this justice issue over here, all those things calling our name. But I think this passage encourages us to look into our own hearts of anger and our own homes as well and then move outward. And then we, lastly, we see that our lives should be marked by justice in the world around us. This passage speaks directly to two major justice issues in our world today, slavery and the unborn. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. The International Justice Mission estimates about 50 million slaves, modern-day slaves, in the world today being trafficked for either labor slavery or, many of them, sexual exploitation. Modern-day slavery is an atrocity that harms God's image bearers, and it's right under our noses. This is why we partner with organizations like Amira who are working to rescue women from the trafficking industry, not in overseas countries, but in New England, in our communities. Right? Friends, as Christians, we should be passionate about that injustice. We also see here, verse 22, very strange situation when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Again, I'm, just, I was, I'm amazed at this because you look at these fine print laws, and they're directly relevant to certain struggles in our world today. And notice that God very clearly here states that both woman and unborn child are considered life. There's no way around it. And if that child dies, 
the man, even though it was an accident, is held responsible. This is why we partner with organizations like the Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices and and their new after-abortion care ministry, Springwater. Because God is passionate about caring for the vulnerable, caring for both women and their unborn children in these situations. See, friends, this this fine print shows us in in a world that belittles and destroys God's image bearers, God's people are to be marked by a just concern and action on behalf of the vulnerable. That should define us. In closing, I think if you were to say, man, is there a great verse that would just summarize all of this, everything we've said? I I think there is one. I think it's Micah 6.8. Sums all of this up for us. Worship, compassion, and justice. Says this, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. See, God's law is like a mirror, right? He he holds it up for us to see so that we're honest with ourselves. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've fallen short of all of these. We've fallen short of worshiping God rightly, of compassion, of justice, right? We worship other things. We often fail to, to live compassionate lives. Instead, we pursue ourselves. We hear of these injustices, maybe on the news, but we're complacent towards them. But here's the good news. God's law is not only a mirror, it's also a guide that leads and directs us to Christ. Christ is the only one who worshiped God truly and perfectly. Christ is the only one who lived a, a life of complete and total, perfect compassion and justice. He's the one who died and rose again so that we who believe in him may have not only salvation, but also his heart and mind among us so that we would be distinguished from the rest of the world and marked by true worship, intentional compassion and justice. So brothers and sisters, as we close, let's look to Christ in faith as we look at these passages, and live lives as God's people marked by worship, compassion, and justice.